This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from Washington, D.C., here's Adam Belmar. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS, Politics of the United States. This week, we are chasing the drama. The hottest book of the 2008 campaign, Game Change. It's about to come to life on HBO, and co-author John Heilman is here. We'll talk about the book, the movie, and his new book about the 2012 campaign. Also, we're going to introduce you to the man behind the photo blog that Time Magazine calls number one in politics, Michael Shaw from BagNewsNotes.com and an exclusive interview with the creative team behind Sarah Palin's viral videos. A brand new one out this week covers her recent bus tour up the East Coast. All that plus Jeannie Mamo is in the house. Mamo! One of the best political consultants in Washington. But first, I want to bring in my good friend and partner of Polyoptics, Josh King. Josh is coming to us from an undisclosed location this week, but no matter. It's always great to have you here. Adam Belmar, I've got a few years on you, but we're both political fanatics buying and downloading the newest campaign books that come online. (laughs) Speak for yourself. You know, a lot of times they're just rehashed, though, 12 months removed, stuff that was in the paper the same day it happened. Fair enough, but if you only had to buy, Adam, four campaign books spanning the last 40 years, what would they be? Well, the first one I think is pretty obvious. You know, from the 72 campaign, there's uh, The Boys on the Bus by Timothy Cruz. It, It talked about life on the road for reporters following Richard Nixon and George McGovern. A classic, no doubt. And from the same cycle, there's Hunter Thompson's Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, which, if you think back, helped spawn any number of careers in journalism or politics. Well, Hunter S. Thompson wasn't exactly bedtime reading in the Belmar household, but I get your point. And he certainly invented a new kind of journalism that, that spawned a generation of copycats. But you know, as I think about it, things got pretty staid after that. You have to skip over three cycles. All of the books written by the pair of Jack Germond and Jules Wickover to get a fat silver volume with a presidential seal on its spine. Richard Ben Kramer's What It Takes. Exactly. The classic of the 1988 campaign that, until 20 years later, 2008, stood as the very definition of the campaign book. Until, of course, Game Change. Game Change by John Heilman and Mark Halpern, the New York Times bestseller that makes content out of all those hush-hush conversations among the so-called Gang of 500 over chips and salsa at L'Oreal Plaza. And and, that that book is about to be a major production for HBO. They've got Ed Harris as John McCain and uh, Julianne Moore as Sarah Palin. Wait a second, who did the casting here? What if the actress isn't as as attractive as the character she portrays? That, my friend, is a job for the makeup department. Well, this book... Game change literally changed the game of campaign books and campaign reporting. You know, you're right. It's it sort of uh, it was a stunning narrative when Galleys first appeared at the end of 2009, and and people have been talking about it ever since. I'd say I'm right up to this week. I mean, look at John Edwards down in North Carolina. It recalls in Game Change the unvarnished portrait of Edwards and the late Elizabeth Edwards, and the saga of that family that has doggedly stayed in the news. Yeah, the unvarnished, raw picture it painted was sort of made into the bestseller that it remains today. You know, beyond his duties working on the book, John Heilman, 
He writes prolifically for New York Magazine, and you can catch him many mornings offering his analysis on MSNBC's Morning Joe. I should mention that John is also an occasional player in the periodic poker game that lends Polyoptics many of its guests. Yeah, you rob them of their money and then tell them to come on the show to get it back. But seriously, you know, John uh, Heilman, we are very lucky to have him join Polyoptics today to chew the fat over covering the campaigns and painting pictures of the behind-the-scenes mechanics and what happens when a photo is accidentally tweeted to 40,000 followers. John, welcome to Polyoptics. Hey, Josh, how are you doing, man? That was a great introduction. You read it just like I wrote it. Thank you. <laughs> great to have you here. You know, I've known Mark Halpern since 1992, working for Bill Clinton. My condolences. I've known, I've known you for many years. Uh, and the way you worked, the mediums in which you worked, your styles, to me had always seemed divergent, or at least on separate tracks. Uh, and then we heard that you'd signed this book to, to write on the 2008 campaign, Game Change. Bring us behind the scenes in game change, if you will. How did you decide that joining forces, joining styles, joining work would produce the kind of book that it, that came out? You know, it's uh, actually a, a remarkably simple story that, that many people are shocked at how uh, absurdly um, devil may care we were about it. You know, Mark and I had been friends and, and colleagues for a long time. Um, we had both been covering the 2008 campaign really carefully and closely from from its start, you know, from the end of 2006. But we really decided only to write the book in the spring of 2008. So, you know, we were a year and a half into covering that race, and, and I had been on a ski trip. I had finally gotten some vacation for the first time in a year and a half um, in the middle of the Pennsylvania primary for the Democrats and had gone off to Aspen and was um, skiing for like three or four days. And I kept thinking about how it was crazy that no one was writing a book about this race. And, and what was in my head was why, why no one was doing primary colors, why someone wasn't writing, wasn't writing a Ramona Clef um, about the campaign. And when I left Aspen, I flew to Washington where I was meeting Mark to go to a McCain event at the Naval Academy out in Annapolis. And we drove out there expecting to see kind of a grand event. McCain was on his biography tour, kind of reintroducing the country to who he was. And so he was going around to places that had been important in his life. Um, and we expected to get out there to the, to the stadium and see, you know, 30,000 screaming midshipmen, uh, mechaniacs, one and all, you know, going crazy for him. And it was maybe, and you guys will, you, both these hosts will appreciate this, it was like one of the worst staged political events I've ever been to. They had McCain standing on a concourse above the stadium. The backdrop was 30,000 empty seats. There was no one there. And the only audience were about 14 geriatrics who were sitting in front of him. The, um, the, the teleprompter failed. It was a viciously windy, cold day. Um, when the teleprompter ate one page of McCain's script, he didn't even notice. He's read right through it. And at the end of it, we wa we got back in the car and drove back to Washington. And as we drove, I said, man, that was like a that was like a political event straight out of a Fellini film. That was just horrible. And in the course of 30 minutes in the car, um, we started talking about this question of why no one was writing a book about this race, how historic it was, how famous and, and celebrity-like a lot of the, the contestants were. And by the time we got to Washington, we're sitting uh, at the base of the Capitol. We had kind of convinced ourselves that someone should write a book about this. And my original idea for doing a Ramana Clef, we kind of looked at each other and said, well, you know, have you ever written a novel? And we both said, well, we've never done that, so we don't have any skills in that area. And then I said, well, what about a movie? Maybe we should write a screenplay. And Mark said, well, have you ever written a screenplay before? I said, no, I haven't done that either. Uh, but the one thing we thought we both could do maybe was was do a narrative nonfiction account of the book of of the campaign and and we we, we wanted we we thought that one of the great advantages we had was the thing that everyone thought was a disadvantage was that the race had been so incredibly overcovered or intensely covered and we sort of thought people said well how what what new things could you bring to the party and we thought well 
we, we were pretty well sourced. We could probably break some news here, but we thought, you know, we could get deep with these characters and not worry about telling the story of every primary or every caucus, but focus really intensely on the candidates and their spouses and try to write the book uh, in a way that was very personal, how they, these people experienced the campaign, how it changed them and how their strengths and weaknesses as human beings uh, bore on the outcome. Uh, we thought we might be able to write a book that someone would read. And um, uh, in the end, uh, we were uh, lucky enough to be able to do that. You know, some of the um, writing uh, and reviews of the book at the time, one said, uh, the New York Times said, it serves up a spicy smorgasbord of observations, revelations, and allegations. It seemed to me, as I read Game Change a couple times, that what you really had managed to do was bring forward this string of conversations that people always have about the candidates, their staffs, and their mechanisms, uh, and present it in a very unvarnished way, in a way that the sort of classic news reporting couldn't do. Um, we, we felt like the, one of the advantages we brought was that, as I said before, we've both been doing this for a long time. And because we've been doing it for a long time, we had unusually close relationships with virtually everybody who mattered at the staff level and at the candidate level on all of the campaigns that that were of consequence. And and so we sat down at one point and made lists, uh, as uh, reporters normally don't do, of, of who our sources were, because we had to figure out, you know, how much we overlapped. And we made lists. First, we started off with a, made a huge list of if we could talk to everyone we wanted to talk to for the book, um, who which which of us had or both of us had had connections to those people. And when we made the list. It was a couple hundred people long at the outset, and there were only two or three names on the list that neither one of us knew, and 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 very few of the ones that we knew we didn't know really well. Which is to say, like these were people who we had long-standing relationships with and, and a huge amount of trust, um, who we could explain the project to, and they would understand what we were trying to do from the very beginning, and who were likely to be uh, as long as we were um, clear with them about the style we were going to do the book in and give people a lot of of uh, a lot of uh, comfort about the fact that because we were going to put our reportorial reputations behind saying that these were the things that happened we wouldn't need to identify sources we were going to stand behind everything in the book that it was true and that required us to cross check everything with everybody and talk to everybody in every room all the time and make sure that there was nothing in the book that we thought would ever be challenged factually and i will say one of the great points of pride that we have about the book is that nothing of consequence in the book has been challenged by anybody there are two things that come to my mind just hearing you talk about the book and having worked with Mark a little bit at ABC News. One of them is, and, and this is for the benefit of our listeners here on Polyoptics, here on Sirius XM, when you're working with sources in this realm, in, in this construct, how do you explain to them or what is the, the understanding when you talk about something that's off the record or something that's on deep background? People wonder about that. How do you deal with that? Uh, with regard to your reporting here, well, we deal with it. We dealt with it in with extraordinary care and with a hu- which a huge degree of explicitness, which is to say, nothing was ever done off the record. Um, we sat down with people, and and as you know, um, the question of what deep background means or what any of these attributional phrases mean are in some dispute, and people use them differently. So we actually didn't use those phrases. We, we for shorthand, we would say it was deep background. But with each of the people that we interviewed for the book, we said. This is how we're going to do the book, and this is how the material you give us is going to be used. So we everything not... is on the record, but there's just not a lot of attribution. Well, there's there's no attribution. In fact, what we said to them was, you you will never be identified as a source in the book. Um, you, but but we will. But everything you say to us is material that we are going to going to use 
after we verified that that verified its truth and accuracy to the best of our ability. And and so everybody understood we were going to write the book in an omniscient way. We were going to stand. We were going to write the book so that each this was there were not he said she said. If there was too much factual dispute among our sources, we just didn't put the thing in the book. We we wrote things that we felt like because either the the quality of the source or the quality of the sources that that matched up, particularly on things of any degree of controversy, we would always try to get multiple sources on everything. It was very clear what how we were going to use the material, how we were going to use the, the, the how how the attribution was going to work, and we were in a hundred percent of the instances in the book, we did exactly what we said we were going to do to every one of our sources, which was also a real big point of pride for us. Talk to us for a second about what it's been like to bring this to the big screen. Maybe some would call it the small screen, but but really this is a, a full-fledged uh, Hollywood-type production. And uh, as you noted earlier, you know, you'd never written a, a screenplay, uh, but, but here this book is being brought to life and it will color people's perceptions, I think, even in a greater way because the visual medium is, is a lot easier to, uh, to comprehend and, and, and it gets a little bit more dramatic. What's the experience been for you as a reporter seeing this come to life? First of all, very exciting. Um, and, you know, the guys at HBO who are making the movie are incredibly uh, high-class operators. You know, they really do an incredible job. You know, we've got these three incredible stars. Um, and when you say it's it's small screen, but when you have Julianne Moore and Ed Harris and Woody Harrelson as your as your big three in a movie, uh, Julianne Moore playing Sarah Palin and, and, and Woody Harrelson playing Steve Schmidt, as Josh mentioned before, Ed Harris playing John McCain, you know, that gives it a real Hollywood feel. These guys have about eight or nine Academy Award nominations between the three of them, and they are a, that's a big lineup. And the guys who are doing the, the directing and the, the screenwriting on the, on the movie, Jay Roach, who's one of the most successful directors in Hollywood, a guy who's directed a lot of huge comedy hits, and also, importantly in this respect, was the guy who directed Recount, the story of the 2000 uh, Florida Recount battle for HBO a few years ago. And Danny Strong, who's the screenwriter who also wrote Recount, they are... You know, I think most people who saw Recount um, felt like it was uh, it did not get attacked by the right and left for being a biased project. It was a project that was very, very uh, faithful to what actually happened in Florida. So they have been remarkably good collaborators. I mean, it's their movie. We've been more collaborators. We've been consultants on the project. You know, we helped uh, Danny as he did the screenplay. Um, We were involved in a lot of meetings and gave a lot of notes and tried to, you know, keep them, help them understand the material in the best way that we could. Um, they are fanta- they're fantastic guys. Um, they have a fantastic feel for the material. And, and in fact, I just actually came back from being down in Baltimore. They're just finishing, uh, getting very close to finishing shooting. And we spent the day yesterday in Baltimore on the set. And man, uh, people are going to be astonished, I think, by the performances that Julianne Moore and Ed Harris and Woody Harrelson are giving. Um, they're, they're just it's st- staggeringly, staggeringly good. It's going to be, the movie's going to be great. John Heilman is the national political correspondent for New York Magazine. He's also the co-author of Game Change. He's joining us here on Polyoptics, Sirius XM 124. Josh King, uh, don't you just want to get uh, John's take on what's going on today? Well, that's exactly right, Adam. I mean, if, if there was Hangover, which was the uh, the box office success that it was a few years ago, obviously there's going to be Hangover too. And we 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 know through various uh, reporting that there will be in one form or another game change too, with some repeat characters probably, uh, and some new ones. So, John, uh, who will be the cast of Game Change Two, and what's the working title? 
Well, there is. Uh, there, you've got the working title already, Josh. There is no. There is no formal title. We don't know what we're going to call the book of that in the line. But for now, it's Game Change Two in our minds and, and Game Change Two in the press accounts of what we're doing. Um, it is true. There will be a book. It will be out in the in the fall of 2013. A little earlier, a little quicker than the last one. We we you know we published a full year after Obama's inauguration last time. We'll be uh, on a little bit faster time schedule this time. And. Um, I want to get you to talk political theater for a minute, and I'm going to give you a couple of examples. I want to know where you are uh, in your knowledge and covering this and, and what your take is. Um, the first one is is Newt Gingrich. Uh, this, from an optics perspective, in my opinion, has been a disaster. Uh, we're, we're seeing news this week of people bailing, jumping ship already from senior advisor ranks. They couldn't get out of their own way in literally weekend one of the campaign. Is there any, I mean, and you point out, obviously, uh, how inefficient and, and almost uh, unprofessional from a, from a political theater perspective John McCain was uh, at the formative part of his campaign. Not that in some ways he kept it real and, and, and very minimal, but uh, he, he did go on to, to grander ranks. Is Gingrich, from an optics perspective, the way that this has is, is, is turned out in the first month or so, is this a non-starter campaign in the American sort of public? Well, I think it's going to be very hard for, for, for Newt Gingrich to recover. And, and, I, and I say that, you know, because you can make big mistakes at the beginning of a campaign um, and, and survive them. And, and you can run out of money and survive that, too, as John McCain um, proves. Uh, what I think it's hard to do is to commit a blunder at the very beginning of your campaign that reinforces everyone's fears about you or everyone's perceptions about what your greatest vulnerability is. So, you know, in Newt Gingrich's case, everyone believed that his biggest problem, his biggest potential challenge would be discipline. And would he be able to not put his foot in his mouth, not say something that would would screw him up, be able to actually exercise some degree of control and to have done what he did um, with respect to Paul Ryan um, and alienating a huge part of the Republican Party by, by, by criticizing Ryan's Medicare plan in the way that he did, not just by criticizing it, but by criticizing it in typically Gingrichian kind of operatic terms, right? Calling it, you know, social engineering on the right. That was a, not just a mistake, but a mistake that made everyone say, yep, that's, that's what we most feared about Newt Gingrich, that he would screw up in just this way. And you remember, it was exactly the same kind of thing that happened to Joe Biden in 2008. Everyone worried that Joe Biden had too big a mouth. And on his first day of his campaign, he said this thing about Barack Obama being clean and articulate. And that was the thing that spooked all of his donors. They said, you know, the biggest, you know Joe Biden might make a good president, but we're worried that he won't be able to control his mouth. And if on the first day of your campaign, or in Newt Gingrich's case, in the first week, if you confirm everyone's worst fears, that is very hard to come back from because, as you say, you know, donors immediately get spooked. Suddenly, you can't run a campaign with no money. The money disappears, um, and and people start to think, you know, I might have been willing to give this guy a chance, but it turns out that he's just as bad as I always feared he might be. Hey, John, the we're going to talk to these folks a little bit later in this show, but some of the visually uh, arresting uh, elements around campaigns are becoming ever more uh, utilized to you know, build energy and uh, whip up emotion. Uh, and Sarah Palin, who is not in any way a declared candidate for president in 2012, although she's been out there doing a national tour, has done a fantastic job, in my opinion, of creating the optics that 
you know, build energy that that drive uh, a lot of pictures and headlines. And she's had uh, this group called Passcode Creative. They're videographers and and storytellers who've created videos for her, including the uh, viral hit Mama Grizzly, and one that's out this week that yep. that that covers the tour uh, up the Northeast and into New Hampshire from uh, last week. Uh, talk to us for a second about how important drawing people in and using this kind of medium is or in your opinion is not at the formative stages of a campaign like this well i'd say it's important throughout from the formative to the to the conclusive stages of any campaign look i mean we know that in the mod this is not a, a novel observation what i'm about to say but you know this is you know these campaigns take place on television and and now large now on the internet and even on the internet now where we now have full motion video all the time on the on the web these are these campaigns are campaigns as much of images as they are of words um, they but but there are as much of words as there are of images you got to get them both right I mean Sarah Palin's problem is that is that well let's say what she does right first I mean she is I think you are exactly right she is has an extraordinary um, she has an extraordinary instinct for being for presenting herself in visual settings that are first of all catnip for cable and second of all to present her in a kind of flattering way she's very magnetic she's always on the move there's something very you know you watch her on tv you can't take your eyes off her and no matter what you think about her um, about her politics she is a, a candidate that has a kind of visual sense that a lot of other candidates who appear flat and static all too often they would kill for um, her problem is when it comes to the stuff that comes out of her mouth and so she can spend a week doing a very successful job on this bus tour and then have the whole thing kind of blow up over this over like making one really dumb kind of nonsensical comment like that she did about the Paul Revere about Paul Revere's ride and what it was for and warning the British and all that that's now become the cable meme is that you know she she kind of she 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 did she did the thing that everyone thinks Sarah Palin is is want to do which is to exhibit her ignorance about a historical thing but on the purely visual level she's really got it going on and as I say I think you know you could it, it, for a lot of these Republican candidates, you know, Tim Pawlenty, you're seeing doing a lot of the same kinds of things, not the same kinds of things, but he's very attentive to, in a professional way, hiring very good videographers and very good production people to create compelling visual images that build a certain kind of a visual narrative around what he's about. And I think it's hard in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a screen driven world uh, it's hard to be a competitive and effective presidential candidate without mastering those arts. We could go on forever with John Heilman. We are very lucky to have had you come in today, and we're very grateful and hope that we'll be able to check back in with you. Uh, Josh uh, and I are, are working hard to try and be dynamic in our coverage of the 2012 campaign, and maybe we could uh, hop on your coattails and find our way to an event that you're covering and, and maybe speak to you again in the near future. It was a perfect pleasure, and I'd be happy to come back. All right. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. A ton going on this week. It is, as we think about the world of polyoptics, I want to bring in uh, Jeannie Mamo, a good friend of mine, a good friend of this show, a frequent contributor here, uh, a political consultant in Washington and someone who also worked in the George W. Bush White House. Jeannie Mamo, welcome back to Polyoptics. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Um, I have to say, heretofore in this broadcast, we have not spoken of the congressman from New York, Anthony Weiner, and his uh, issues, but I think now is the time. Uh, I don't think that this audience needs a recap of the 
political hemorrhaging and trauma that has transpired to date, except to say that as of this taping, Anthony Weiner is still United States Congressman. He has not resigned, and uh, truly triple X photographs uh, of him are on the internet now. Jeannie, what is your gut reaction to all this? Not not in a personal way, but the political implications and the image that uh, he now possesses in the in the public mind. I, I got to tell you. Um this is insane. I mean, I, I thought I had seen a lot. I think America thought they had seen a lot um, in all the political scandals we've had, even in my lifetime. Um, but but this one really, for me, takes the cake. I mean, and it has, you know, less to do, as, as everybody will say, less to do with the crime than the cover up. I mean, to go for 10 days and tell your constituents and tell the American people and stand before the media and say, it's not mine. I know with certitude well, no, he said, I think he said at one point he couldn't say with certitude. He couldn't that say it with wasn't. certitude that it wasn't him. Um, and uh, I just I find it amazing. And I really have to say I find it amazing um, that more people are not calling for his resignation. I think um, that it's going to be interesting to see. I mean, he's standing fast right now, um, and uh, I've just been surprised, quite frankly, that more people aren't calling for it. But just you know, obviously it's the technology, but more than that. Um, it's just to stand before the American people and say that that to deny the whole thing first to call it a hacking, then to call it a joke. I mean, I, I think most people knew uh, from the time he went from hacking to joke that there was a problem here. You know, for me uh, and, and Josh King, I think, shares this as well. This is not a Republican or a Democrat no, issue. Absolutely not. This is all about credibility, and and you know journalists have credibility, politicians have credibility, but when you come down to it, the American people are incredibly savvy at at separating uh, the the truth from what they just see as plain old bull. And I think everybody wanted to know, wanted to give the benefit of the doubt, but this just didn't ring true. And, of course, it ended up being this great lie that he tried to perpetuate by spreading it to everybody who would listen. But it's also the drip, drip, drip uh, of it because we ended up with one thing. Then it was this realization that he had not only uh, done what he said he didn't do, but he was urging other people to cover it up. And then now we're getting this truly pornographic uh, image, and there may be even more out there. And we, we, we begin to understand that this is barely the tip of the iceberg it's not the whole story and can we even let it come out in a way that he could ever survive it who wants this guy being a representative in the u.s congress absolutely and and i think look i agree with you it has nothing to do with with republican or democrat except that you know the republicans have done some similar things to this a uh, rep uh, oh, there's no Congressman doubt that there's Chris been Lee, some shameful but the behavior. Point is, absolutely. O- on both sides, again, that's why I'm saying it's not Republican or Democrat. But the difference is that the leadership of the Republican Party said to Congressman Lee, goodbye, goodbye, today's your last day. We will be seeing you later. And we haven't seen that on the Democrat side. And I've got to tell well, you, Nancy that surprises Pelosi, me. That Nan- surprised. She called for an investigation, she but she didn't call for his resignation. No. I find that interesting. I just do. Well, you're right, and there have been others, including uh, the former head of the DNC, uh, former Virginia governor Tim Kaine, who called for his resignation. There have been others, uh, but sur- well, they're lining up now. But they, I mean, it are. didn't take a week for for John Boehner to say goodbye to Congressman Lee. 
Well, that that's a fair point. Um, the thing I think in the end, when I think about uh, through, sort of through this polyoptics lens that we so often look at the world uh, here on this broadcast, this does as much damage to the Democratic brand as it does to the Republican oh, brand. Oh, absolutely. Politics in general. Politics in general. Absolutely. And the, the House of Representatives and members of Congress who already enjoy a ridiculously low public approval rate aren't helping themselves by having people who stand in right. the well of the house and yell and scream about things and are at home taking pictures of well, you know, the their private people, parts. Well, in the American people, we have 9.1% unemployment in this country. And if I- any human being out there working in a small business or a large business, if they had done similar things oh, that so Congressman fired. Wiener did, so fired, it'd be a five-minute conversation. They would have somebody in their office clearing it out within five minutes of this discovery, and yet... He's going to get to stay in office. I thought we were supposed to hold our elected officials to higher standards, not lower ones. I think that's what is shocking to so many people. Yeah, but it's not the only uh, political theater that's caught my eye this week, Jeannie. Uh, one of the things that I think is most interesting has been that we've had a, uh, a uh, state visit, uh, which has largely gone unnoticed uh, outside the Beltway. Uh, Angela Merkel, the Chancellor of Germany, the country that will now uh, mothball its nuclear fleet by 2023 or four, uh, was here for what was a very interesting uh, state visit. It had the trappings that we're used to, but it also had this dinner. The president and Angela Merkel out for dinner in Georgetown. He doesn't even have a jacket on. Um, and it seems kind of cool between the two of them, although people are playing. What, what did you make of all this? Well, and and she received the Medal of Freedom, too. I think that. Oh, yeah, by the way. Yeah, by the way, the one of the highest civilian honors there is in this country, by the way, um, which, you know, I obviously I agree with you that if we went to Des Moines, Iowa, maybe not Des Moines because they're very politically astute there, but let's say we went to any small town in America and asked the average person on the street if they knew that the German chancellor was in town and got the Medal of Freedom, the answer would be no because all they've heard about is is Congressman Wiener and the situation that he's gotten himself in. Um, but it was quite, quite, uh, from what I saw, quite the dinner. Um, you know, they, you know where they did power, it? Though. Tell people where they did this. The, uh, in the Rose Garden. Yeah, in the Rose Garden. This it is wasn't a, as hot as it has been. But it's a remarkably intimate space. Yes. Um, and I, you're, you're listening to two people who spent a lot of time in the Rose Garden. And I don't say that in like, hey, I've been there and you haven't. I'm just telling <laughs> yes, you. Yes, he is, folks. That's exactly <laughs> what he's saying. <laughs> this is a place that's truly special. It just steps away from the Oval Office. It, it overlooks the... Uh, the Washington Monument, the south grounds of the White House, and then deeper in the background is the Jefferson uh, Memorial. But it is gorgeous at this time of the year. And it was such a small, intimate gathering, which stands in stark contrast to, you know, another uh, much more publicized state visit for India that, that people are still talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and not quite the star power, though, the, on the list of guests. Uh, James Taylor was there. Yeah, he but was for the entertainment. Of, yeah, not a lot of Hollywood um, Hollywood folks there, which I, I've... I'd, Diane Sawyer yeah, was there. Yeah. Oh, she was. I saw pictures of her. She looked pretty good. Excellent. Um, but you're right. We've had a, a real hot spell here in Washington, and, and that could be a place that's not so great to do a dinner. But it looked magnificent. And, uh, you know, in some ways, it's just been plowed under uh, for so much salacious news that's been coming out, which is really unfortunate for our country, because I think this relationship needed some love and some nurturing. And there are a lot of things going on in the background that 
uh, average Americans are, are not thinking about that, that that's in, important for the White House to push forward. And, and yet here they've been unable to deliver on the promise uh, in a real way on the on the greatness and grandeur of a, of a state visit. Yeah, I agree with that. And I it definitely struck me that this it was barely talked about. There was you know, usually there's a lot of coverage. Oh, it was leading a blink and up. you miss it. Yeah, there's usually a lot of lead up coverage to, oh my gosh, another state visit. Who's coming? Who's going to get invited? Who won't be invited? I mean, they usually spend a week discussing that. And I'm not kidding you. If you if you weren't paying attention, you would have missed it even in Washington. Jeannie, one last thing for you before we dive into these two interviews. If you were paying attention in America this week to presidential politics, who popped? Was there anyone who pierced the veil of of noise, or is it just it's just so much background right now? Congressman Weiner. That's it. It just superseded. Just superseded everything. One of the things that uh, we do every week as we prepare for polyoptics here on POTUS is scour the web to find the pictures that are most compelling or look at the pictures that people cast aside. What did they tell us about the events of the day or what was going on just out of frame? But as we do that for ourselves, you can find this kind of insight and analysis Uh, at what Time Magazine just called the number one photo blog on the net, and that is no small uh, accolade. It's called bagnewsnotes.com, and you can find that website and its critical analysis of politics and uh, pictures and visual journalism. But the man behind it, Michael Shaw, who's a clinical psychologist and uh, uh, really an expert in analyzing visual journalism, is with us today on Polyoptics. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I have been long a fan of your uh, website, but we share something in this idea of polyoptics, the mashup of politics and optics and how visual communication influences people. What is What got you started, Michael, and how do you figure what the topics of the week are and how do you dial in uh, on, on, your, on your targets? What got me started was uh, I, I owe a great debt, I have to say, to uh, Karl Rove. Uh, and, uh, you know, his quote, um, politics is TV with the sound off. I was watching uh, or studying the um, imagery of the uh, 04 election uh, really in the early days. And the distinction between the um, coverage of Bush and the coverage of Kerry was astounding. And the way that um, the, uh, the GOP and the, Re- the Republicans, um, Team Bush, was able to uh, also take slogans and then marry um, visuals to them, the whole like flip-flopping. And then, the, then I was watching also how the media would kind of pick up on that meme, and then the coverage would reflect some of the, those, whether it's the slogans or some of the framing that they were building. So um, I, I really felt actually that I couldn't do anything but start to write about this because I think that, you know, people don't learn um, uh, visual literacy in school, and I thought that, you know, news consumers probably needed a little bit of support in terms of reading this kind of imagery, visual spin, persuasion imagery. So almost like this kind of start to uh, uh, even the playing field a little bit. You know, it's funny when you talk about uh, visual imagery and persuasive elements. Uh, you know, I'm a former television journalist. I uh, was schooled in the art of composing pictures and telling stories. Uh, Jeannie Mamo has been involved with media forever and really supervised the photo editing uh, in the Bush White House. Uh, and so as I would come from one side 
to help construct the images that you would later critique. Uh, Jeannie was was sort of charged with making sure that the the right ones were released and the other ones were, were left to the cutting room floor. Yeah, and Michael, uh, one of the things, I mean, uh, Adam was talking about uh, the fact that you critique all these pictures and my job for the last, the last term at least, really the last three years, was to make sure there wasn't much for you to critique. Because um, I have to say, the, the press obviously looks at these things with a very, very critical eye. I'm reminded of a photo just this week that Esquire magazine I don't know if you've seen this, has taken uh, to task a photo of uh, Governor Pawlenty, former Governor Pawlenty, who has announced for president, standing uh, by himself at a very long distance in a uh, empty parking lot of a baseball field. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, when I first saw that photo, I was like, oh, my gosh, the incredibly shrinking candidate. Um, and, and that's the thing you have to be careful of. And again, this campaign, I keep saying this to Adam over and over, this campaign is going to be different than anyone we've had because people are out there taking cell phone pictures and flip video. And it's not as uh, it's pretty freewheeling. And I'm sure that somebody on the campaign just snapped that thing and threw it up on Facebook. And now the mainstream media, Esquire magazine, takes it and does a a total critique. Here are the 10 things that this picture says. One, is his candidacy ever going to get off the ground? Two, does he have any supporters? There's nobody standing around him. They even talk about the fact that he's wearing a blue shirt and black pants, which apparently is his uniform. That's all he wears is a blue shirt and black pants. But one single image, um, you know, is now that, that magazine. I've had 10 people send me that one article this week. Yeah, in a way, it's sort of what goes around, comes around, too, though, because a lot of that coverage of Kerry uh, in 04 was very similar. You know, the classic um, treatment that Time did, where they took a double-page spread of Kerry coming out of a swing pool. You see him at the edge of the pool, he's looking up, and he, and he has a, a long face on. But what they did, which was amazing, is that because they ran this over two pages, where you get the page split in the middle, it's, it draws a line, it kind of cuts him in half right down the center. And what does that say? Flip-flop. So, uh, yeah, I think this stuff is really dangerous. There's, there's really nothing new to it, but, um, you know, it's sort of like how you can pick up whatever, like, kind of is in the air and then start to characterize the, the, the person through visuals. It's, 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 it's dangerous. The other thing, by the way, is as opposed to, I think, the um, kind of best practices or kind of style that uh, that I think that you that you were using and doing extremely well um, with the Bush administration. A lot of your pictures were much more um, posed and composed. And what uh, Obama did, and uh, I think Pete Souza, which is really really interesting, is they completely flipped that whole. Um, strategy. So starting from them launching the Flickr site out of nowhere and doing it, I think it was the night of the convention where all of a sudden you didn't just see one composed photo that went out of them sitting around with the family watching television. You had 60 photos. And there he is with the mom. And and so all of a sudden the strategy now is all about the candid shot. So all these photos are coming out and the, and the media is, you know, showing them left, right. You don't even know anymore whether it's like a White House photo or a Newswire photo, which is pretty brilliant in itself. But also, these are, these, these are basically composed or staged photos, as you know a lot better than I do, 
but they don't look like that at all. You know, this is absolutely perfect because you are right there in your analysis at the heart of the issue. We we spoke some time ago to David Hume Kennerly, the famed ah. White House photographer, and one of the things that he posited in our in our discussion on uh, polyoptics was the fact that in some ways this strategic move on the part of Sousa and the Obama White House, while it's had plenty of benefit for them, has also disenfranchised uh, traditional news photographers. They they don't need them. They don't want them. They don't give them the candid moments. We can do it ourselves. And you get to a point, says Kennerly, you're losing the credibility that comes along with those candid pictures that, that, that people have come to know. And there is that ability to sort of lose uh, perception of, was this a White House photo? Was this a Reuters or an AFP or Getty Images or so forth? Um, not lost on you, me, and, and maybe the folks who, who follow polyoptics so closely. But then you get to a point like we have recently, um, and, and I'm, I'm looking at Jeannie as I say this, because when the the raid on the compound in Abbottabad, Pakistan, came up very, very sparse images and they have slowed down their their flicker uh trickle you can call it a stream but i call it a trickle now because mm-hmm. you're starting to get a little bit more savvy to the fact that when they only want one image that's all they give and the candid and the oversaturation of, of their ability to give imagery is helpful and sometimes sure <laughs> it's great but then they'll dial it back to next to nothing genie yeah and let, look it's interesting that you bring that photo up. They they released one photo in the Situation Room, which I'll just tell you from experience, and this, this White House learned the hard way, if you release a photo, you better be able to explain what was going on in the photo, especially when there's not much information coming out. Um, you know, that led to... Um, questions about well, what were you looking at on the screen? Why did with why, why did, did why did Hillary Clinton look like she was gasping? Exactly, and what and what were you seeing? And why, if you have a picture and we can see that you're watching a screen of some sort of action, then you better tell us what was going on. And then Brennan steps to the microphone, gives that long briefing, and they can't get the facts straight for two or three days. And I actually think that photograph led to people asking so many questions about, well, what were you watching on the screen? What was actually happening? And see, that's how I used to look at the photos, is if we release this photo, what are the questions going to be surrounding the photo? Michael Shaw, uh, publisher of BagNewsNotes.com, what's your take on that photo and, and that line in general about the way this White House is is, is using imagery? Well, I think that it's really fascinating to hear what uh, Jeannie just said, because I think that in terms of the echo chamber and how people are talking about the photo in the in the press and in the media, there are a lot of questions to be asked by that photo, and people will say, you know, that maybe they are trying to really, like, you know, do like a big PR move here. But I think that once you get outside of D.C. and outside of the mainstream media and you start looking at the resonance of that photo in the blogosphere, uh, and then just in terms of the general public, I think it was wildly successful, and I think for a, a number of reasons. I think that um, people really do uh, take the basic information that he's looking at, uh, and, and, and you're seeing them right at the point of the commitment to the um, raid, and you see Obama as the guy who, who really took 
the gamble, and you and you see in a way that I don't think you really ever do see, you know, a kind of fear there. Uh, again, this is all PR. We know that, like I was saying before, it's it's usually promotional. But the but people, I think, they see that this guy's put all his chips on the table. The fact that he's off to one side, and so it's it, it, in, if you like, kind of look at it in terms of like the three three quadrants of a, of a photo. He's out there on the left. And and he is on his own, so it shows that kind of autonomy. People have talked also about, you know, kind of the racial dimension that, in a way, he really moves, steps into his boots in terms of being the leader. And all of a sudden, there's like, you know, no issue of, of of race in here. Maybe issues of gender in terms of there only being two women in the in the photo, but not in terms of race. You also, in terms of the way he's dressed. You know, it's it's very much dressed down. You don't get any kind of sense of hierarchy or authority. You know, Obama was, from day one, was like, this is going to be, you know, we're going to be, you know, this team, and 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 it has and it has that sense. Um, I think I think it was an unbelievably powerful and, and 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 effective image. And people aren't asking the questions of what exactly is on the screen and and you know what and what time do they take this uh well i agree with that that the people the the american people outside the beltway were not but boy every every journalist and reporter in this town was which then obviously colors their coverage yeah but i mean that's a you know when we're talking about photos that's a really interesting disconnect though Mm -hmm. and i think that you know um particularly this white house and again i think it is maddening to um uh, both like the traditional media and then also the people that I'm really close to are the freelancers. And they also, when they start to see uh, images go out on Flickr and free license or even the fact that now, you know, the whole phenomenon of people with, you know, this, this uh, cell phones and, and, and the, that, ty- that type of imagery, even if it's of the president, can, you know, can get out there on the media. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's, there's a growing disconnect there to, like, work around the established outlets. The objective, in the end, is to influence people to create a brand, to leverage events and ground them into iconic images that ultimately help uh, you know, nurture people's understanding of a president or a candidate or around certain campaigns. It is it is very interesting, and there's a lot of psychology there. Michael Shaw, publisher of Bag News Notes, he's also the author of a must-read column at the Huffington Post called Reading the Pictures. Uh, you, sir, are a kindred spirit and a brother to us here at uh, Polyoptics. I'm glad we could have you on today, and I hope we'll have a regular uh, airing of opinions and analysis from you as we go forward. Love to do it again. It's a, it was a pleasure. All right. Good to be with you. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Jeannie, one of my most favorite things right now is the way that candidates and even those who are not yet candidates are utilizing visual information, leveraging their events, making videos, sharing them with the world. And did you watch a lot of the bus tour that went on with Sarah Palin? Well, I definitely watched the coverage of the tour. Right. And yeah, it's fascinating. It's fascinating to me that I think um, she's doing something that no other candidate obviously is doing. And she's just she's just rolling out there. Um, I'm sure that a lot of it is planned, but it doesn't look that way. And I think that's what makes it so um, fascinating. And what's what's interesting for me to see is to watch the press just scratch their heads. They don't know how to deal with this. They, they really don't. They just run around going, where is she, where is she, where is she? Which I don't know if that was planned or not, but 
It's brilliant. Well, if you want to know where she is or where she was, the best way to do it is to hop on the internet and find some of these videos that take you behind the scenes. But what I said last week and the week before is watch for the guys who get off that truck either before she does or afterwards. They're folks who are shooting the pictures and making video of the events. Their their whole business is blowing up because of their phenomenal talent. It's a group out of Nashville, Tennessee, um, called Passcode Creative. And we've got one of their founders on the line with us right now. Uh, Eric Welch, welcome to Polyoptics. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Your work has been literally going viral for some time now. You all are the ones behind uh, Sarah Palin's Mama Grizzly television spot. Correct. What an amazingly powerful way to pull together footage of her and her message. How do you get into this? And are you just a major advisor to the campaign? Or are you an afterthought? They just have you come and shoot everywhere they go and let you do your magic? How does it work? Well, basically, they just reach out to us when they want to capture uh, an event or uh, something that's going on. And we go out and capture through video footage just about almost like a fly on the wall. And we just follow and shoot and come back and then they'll have an idea of where they want to go, like a message or a theme that they want to portray, and then we execute around that theme. Jeannie Mamo and I worked in the Bush White House, and we did a lot of media and a lot of production. Uh, but it makes me wonder, uh, you know, take Mama Grizzly, for example. Is that the kind of thing where you set out to cover, and uh, these things just came about and the narrative sort of wrote itself? Uh, or was there something more planned here? Well, I think the the it's kind of a little bit of both. I mean, obviously, with politics in general, you have to be very fluid about what hits with people and what resonates with voters, viewers, whatever. But uh, there was a theme of, you know, she's going to be around a lot of women at a certain event. Make sure you photograph her with women. It's going to be a major theme for 2010 because there's so many women candidates running. And there are a lot of her endorsements were coming with women. So it was kind of underlying that we were, you know, gearing the lens toward that. And then when she did the uh, speech about Mama Grizzlies, it was just like, okay, that's it. That's the thing. Let's go with that. The the element that I really love, and I think, Jeannie, you appreciate this uh, perhaps better than anyone, is the role that still images play, even in video. Now, they you, the, the, the Palin uh, organization has tapped some phenomenal talents, even beyond just your own, uh, and a former White House photographer that we know well, uh, Shayla Craighead, and she's been uh, a large part of this latest video that's just come out this week that you've produced. Talk to us a little bit about what the role of, of the captured still image is in your narrative and how you help leverage that uh, you know, on the trail with, with Sarah Palin. Right. Well, this project particularly was one that we were not going to be able to be out on the road as much as we usually were. So um, what we did was Shayla was out photographing. She's, you know, she's very tied into the organization, and she's been there for a long time. So we said, okay, well, how do we creatively make something with the resources we have? And she had tons of photo- photos you know, with her photography. So I asked her, I said, do you have like series? Like, do you have like 
uh, one scene where you have like five shots of the same scene. She goes, yeah, I have stuff like that. I said, perfect. So then what I was able to do is thread those together because really photography, you know, motion picture is really motion picture. It's a series of still frames put together. So that's essentially what I tried to do with this video. We had some video footage. We obviously captured some news footage. But I tried to incorporate the stills in an interesting way to still tell the story and get that emotion across. And she had some great photos that were awesome to put in the piece. Jeannie Mama, uh, talk for a second about how unbearably boring political communication could be in a visual form, even if there's something <clears throat> visually interesting to it, and how people see that you it has to have a beat. you got to dance to it. It's got to engage you and bring you somewhere. Well, and especially this day and age. I mean, and that's the thing, quite frankly, that's fascinating to me about this whole Palin bus tour, if you will. First of all, they're not calling it a bus tour. Um, they're not calling it a campaign. And I, I think Eric just hit on something. You said the something. C word. Don't say the there C word. There you go. Uh, and, and, and Eric touched on it a minute ago when he said, um, you know, the, the the press, Anderson Cooper and the rest of them are covering, is she running, is she not running? Whereas Eric and his folks who are working with him are covering what she is saying. What is the message she wants to get across? I don't think that anybody, not many journalists, covered the message. They covered where she going, what she doing, who she going to be with. It was the process of that whole bus tour, if you will, not any sort of message that she said. To, to me, Eric, uh, the coverage got laborious and boring for me. There was nothing but speculation. But when I watched the video, and you all, you know, who are listening to to us here on Polyoptics at SiriusXM on the POTUS channel can go to polyoptics.com and see a link to this video. Uh, and you should take a look at it because it is not only compelling, if you're a Sarah Palin fan or not, this is an example of best practice in in communication on the political scene in, in 2011 and how it should be done. Uh, because you brought us inside the tour. And not like a behind-the-scenes, uh, on-the-bus way, but you know we saw her out on a boat and we saw her with uh, the Statue of Liberty. We saw her um, at Mount Vernon and a host of stops along the way that no cameras, no one strove to bring that forward. There may have been a few pictures for the for the local news, but it was usually the, the media scrum. How do you guys bring forth, is it just access? I mean, if other people, regular journalists had that kind of access, do you think it would be powerfully... Uh, tied together, or is it just the kind of thing that requires a really diligent uh, strategy for telling a story that, that, that only sort of a private video like the, the kinds that you do can bring forward? I think it comes down to a lot of elements. There are so many elements. I mean, obviously, there's the capture of what you're photographing and your access, no question. But there's also the element of how you're editing and putting things together. You know, we go through a lot of music to try and convey the right emotional tone to what we're trying to show visually. But I, I feel like one of the most important things in the, the job and the thing that we're asked to do is, is to convey the heart of the client, of the, of the candidate or whomever. And a lot of people lay their template and their ideals on top of that candidate and try to create something that that person isn't. And I don't think that's fair to that person. You know, there are moments in there that there's that one shot that we linger on, that close-up of her with her hair blown when she was out in New Hampshire visiting those fishermen, and there's just something in her eye. There's something in that last shot where she's um, 
on the on the ferry going over to Ellis Island where she's just standing there looking at the Statue of Liberty going by it. There's just a moment there, and you're looking for those moments, and what do those moments convey? And I think a lot of times other programs might just be capturing for what's happening. No, we're looking for how does this moment make you feel? What are you? What is the thought process here? There are so many images that are captured of her, and just the the spectacle, the wonder in her eye when she's visiting these monuments and these these locations, and you see her true love for the country, and her amazement almost at how magnificent this is and how can you not appreciate how great this is and that was the whole purpose of the bus tour visually to convey that and her heart so that's really what we were trying to create if that answers your question at all yeah you know eric uh, great to talk to you uh, i want to encourage people to check out passcode creative uh, you can find them on the internet at passcode creative.com um you know we're we're going to be talking to practitioners who are out there uh working uh for president obama on his campaign and if we if we see people uh in the 2012 race doing this kind of work and you know who knows she may end up being a candidate for president and you may be a part of that but for now it's great to talk to you to know about what you're doing and have you share a little bit about what goes behind the scenes as a producer and a, and a videographer and a storyteller, uh, of which I think you are terrific. Uh, appreciate your time, and it's great to have you on Polyoptics. Well, thank you so much for including me. It's been an honor. For Josh King, I'm Adam Belmar. Thanks for listening to Polyoptics on POTUS, Politics of the United States. <laughs>